I'm not sure what it is about you today, Alex. You just kind of have a glow about you. This episode of Self-Hosted is brought to you by The Sun. Solar-powered podcasting. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, and you got quite the solar setup, I mean, compared to the one that I have on my RV roof, which is um, a lot smaller. <laughs> you got a lot more roof to work I with. I don't have a need to drive it down the road, do I? So, yeah, I've gone for an 8-kilowatt solar system on my roof. That's great. And it, so it actually means, like, legitimately, it's running everything. On a day like today, in the middle of June, when the sun is beating down real hard all day, I can actually run both my AC units, all my servers, the fridges, the TVs, everything, 100% on solar for about two hours. And I know something that's on your mind is like eventually putting some sort of battery solution in there. There's, of course, reasonable solutions. But if you could just Star Trek Q style, snap your fingers and have a battery solution materialize out of thin air, what would be your ideal setup? Uh, you know how I like to make stuff. I, I've I've been watching videos of this guy called, I think, uh, is it Jerry Garcia or, or something like that on YouTube for years? And he builds his own batteries, power walls, out of old electric car batteries. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I just think that'd be the coolest thing in the world because cars need a very high peak voltage to accelerate the mass of the vehicle. Whereas a house is a much more constant, much less peaky load than that. So you can get away with old, air quotes, dead car batteries that are actually suitable for, for houses. I, you know what I didn't even appreciate earlier is that you had your air conditioning going. Yeah. Two units as well, because uh, I live in one of these uh, crazy big American houses that has a unit per per story. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, though. I mean, you're like not even hitting like the power grid to run air conditioning. That's That's awesome. Yeah. At one point today, the solar was reporting 6.4 kilowatts wow. uh, of power. So 6,400 watts, I suppose. I dream one day of of building a big big array. Just something, even something around that size, I think would be perfect for what what I have envisioned for the future. Twenty four panels, I think. Um, Solar Edge is the company that I went with. Um, yeah, and they've got an, an online monitoring platform, which Home Assistant, of course, talks to. And my there's a local Zigbee gateway that talks to the inverter uh, as well to provide that information. In fact, when they were installing it, it was kind of funny. The uh, the installer knocked on my door and said, "Hey, where's your where's your router?" And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Is that your yank? <laughs> like router. <laughs> Why do you want access to my to my router? And uh he was like, Oh, I've got this Zigbee box I want to plug in. And I'm like, Why? And he, he told me about you know everything it does. And I thought, Oh, that's so cool. And I was like, What do you need? He goes, I just need an Ethernet port. I'm like, Oh, oh, okay. I got you covered. <laughs> that's pretty great. So uh, now it's connected up and uh, it all talks back to the equipment over Zigbee. Wow, that's wild. That is, you know, we also learned recently that Zigbee is used on the Mars helicopter opportunity, or no, I'm sorry, Ingenuity. And that's how it talks back to the Mars rover is over Zigbee. Really? That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so Zigbee's getting, it's getting used on Mars to communicate with the little drone helicopter. Well, that's pretty cool. I'll be interested to follow your journey to see how that setup evolves. And then eventually I can't wait to hear stories of you up there on the roof trying to clean those panels after some storm or oh, something. Oh, God. Yeah, you know it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have a confession to make before we get too far into the show. So first, I want to tell you about our friends at A Cloud Guru. This episode is brought to you by them. They are the leader in learning for the cloud for Linux and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloud guru.com. 
So while I was in Montana, I decided to be just, I guess, like extra challenging and give myself more stress during my trip. I decided to just to kind of throw a wrench at everything and do a episode of Coda Radio live on the road. Not that this is impossible, but when, you know, I've pre-recorded everything and I'm only doing one live show on the road, like I'm not really in the right headspace. I haven't really checked everything out. I didn't really think through it methodically like I would if it was a whole series of shows I'm going to produce. And one of the things I didn't really have dialed in before I left for Montana was remote desktop control. And it has to be remote desktop. It can't be SSH. I actually have to see the console because of the audio tools we use in our mixer. I have to see the console. And I I thought, well, you know what I'll do? I know I shouldn't do this, but I don't have time. I'm I'm going to throw TeamViewer on these machines. And when I'm in Montana, I'll pull up TeamViewer and I'll get everything working. And I'll get the stream up over TeamViewer. It'll be fine. And for about five minutes, it was. Um, I got re- I got remoted in. I realized, oh, this machine, you know, it's not running quite right. It needs to be rebooted. So I restarted the machine I was remoted into, which is fine, right? That's fine. It comes back up. And TeamViewer, it, it has like some detective code in there that detected that I was doing admin-like functions, remoting into a machine, rebooting, and then trying to reconnect to it after a few minutes. And it detected that I was doing these admin-like functions and then disabled my ability to connect for like 15 minutes. Now, that sucks because I'm an hour out from going live, and I want to get the stream up. I like to get the stream up about an hour before we start so people can start, you know, assembling. 15-minute timeout. Okay, so I go about and I do my other things. I set other stuff up. 15 minutes goes by, and I may be getting the time window wrong. This was a few weeks ago. But that 15 minutes goes by. I reconnect. Nope, sorry. Admin activity detected. You have to wait 15 minutes. Oh, man. So I keep going, setting up. Now I'm like a half hour. Actually, I let extra time go by just in case. And now I'm like, I'm I'm at the 40-minute mark. Show starts at the top of the next hour. So I'm like trying to get connected. I gave it extra time. I gave an extra like five, 10 minutes. I connect again. Nope. Admin detected. Can't connect. Now I'm starting to get panicked. Now I can't get on. Now I can't get on the internet. I can't get on this live stream. I can't get that going. You know, Mike doesn't know he's going to be connecting, expecting me to be there. The audience is starting to show up in the chat room asking where the stream's at. It's starting to get stressful. So, you know, I go into business mode. And I think to myself, look, you jackass, it's like $670 to just buy the commercial license and then you can get access to your machines and you can do your show. You're going to be traveling more this year. Just just pay the damn price. So I I think about it. I know I could self-host this. I know I shouldn't do this. But I, I want to get on the air. The show starts in just a few minutes. So I head over to TeamViewer's site. I get all logged in, make sure it's all my account stuff is correct. And I subscribe to the annual like $670 plan. Oh, that's a lot of greenbacks. Oh, it's, it hurts so bad. I mean, I've, I, I've paid more for other subscriptions, but this one in particular, because of how they got me into it, and because I needed I needed to just do this once, you know, like the way they got me into this. But I knew, I, OK, if I, I might need to do it more. All right, I'll pay. I'll pay their license. Fine. It says instant activation right at the top of the website. So I think I'm going to be golden. Well, it was Labor Day. 
And the team viewer staff was off that day, Alex, and nobody was there to issue me my license. Wait, that's not automated. That's not instant either. And so the time comes, we're like five minutes. I still haven't gotten activated. In fact, it took till the next day until I got activated. I was so angry. But I figured out that if I did a new install on a new Linux box and connected from the first time from that machine to the other machine that I was getting blocked on, I could do it from that machine with the free account. And I got the stream up and running with like two minutes to spare. And I had to then like just let all of that fade and just focus on the show and and, and sit with the fact that I spent that nearly $700 and still didn't have the license. And I just had to sit with that while I did the show. <laughs> it was, and so I, in that moment, resigned myself to find a free self-hostable replacement for TeamViewer. I would not let this happen to me again. And I did some shopping. I found a couple of different options. I don't know. Have you looked in this area yourself before, a TeamViewer replacement? No, they've never actually got me with that uh, admin stuff detected. I used to use it quite a bit to help family members back in the day. But uh, lately, I don't know, technology's matured to the point where I don't often need to remote into their systems anymore so well and in a lot of cases something like wireguard with vnc would do mostly what you need in in a lot of cases but in my case i sometimes am behind a double nat i need to be able to traverse that i need to do it from a mobile device i need to be able to do it from a linux box a, Win- a mac box you know anything like that yeah that's where TeamView is really nice it just it just punches through everything so if you've never used it before it's pretty slick actually you type in a like a nine digit code which identifies the other person's server. And then they give you a five or six character password that you type in. And uh, yeah, that's how you do it. You just connect like that. It punches through every firewall, inbound, outbound, whatever, bounces off their servers and just works. And it makes those remote support situations so much more streamlined with that code. And uh, it's simple. I tried a few things and Rust Desk came across my... I don't know, maybe it was an email, but it came across my path. And uh, if if you did send it to the show, thank you, because I eventually did get a chance to try it out. And I really, really like Rust Desk. As the name implies, it is built. It is built in Rust. The client, the front end is open source. They they have one for basically every major OS, including your Linuxes out there. The front-end client is really clean and simple. It's a lot like a simplified front-end for TeamViewer. It runs as a back-end service on Linux, so you don't even necessarily have to have, have it up and running on your screen. It'll install itself as a service. There is a server component. Now, by default, you can use their server. You can use their their server. I think there's really no restrictions on it. I was able to connect to three machines simultaneously using their free server. They do say, though, right on their front page, our server resources are limited, so please set up your own server. And that's where this gets a little tricky. You can pay $200 a year, which is a lot less than $700, for their server which is all set up and and nice and lets you do all kinds of connections and you can run it on your own box for a year. But, you know, $200 is a lot for some people. So they've also made a demo server available is what they call it. Now, this demo server is significantly limited. Only one relay connection allowed, no NAT traversal. You really kind of have to be prepared for like a very limited experience, but it's a demo server that's quote unquote free. It's open source. 
You could run it on your machine right now. They make a Docker container available for it. But because it's open source, the community could, in theory, take their spec implementation and build a more feature-complete, self-hostable Rust Desk server. And I think if Rust Desk continues to take off and really makes itself a, an appealing alternative to TeamViewer, I could really see the community stepping up and taking the spec implementation that they make available for free and building it into something else. So I'm kind of going all in. I loaded it on all the machines that I would need to be able to remote support in the studio. How's the performance? A lot of these things, you mentioned VNC a few minutes ago. I just have memories of that thing leave just not working very well or not updating the cursor unless something's moving elsewhere on the screen. How's this work? Oh yeah, so many old cursor problems with VNC. And are watching like the the the, the screen paint <coughs> as it as yep. you wait. Yeah. Oh. No, it's good. It's great. In fact, I'd say it is absolutely comparable with team viewers performance. I didn't get a chance to dig in under the hood to see what they're using. If if they're using VNC, it is absolutely by far the fastest, bestest, most incredible implementation of VNC I've ever seen. I'd suspect it must be something else, though, because the performance is great. There's no mouse ghosting. Um, and uh, I was absolutely happy, even while having three connections going simultaneously. Well, that's the beauty of it being uh, open source, right? We can go and have a look if we want. You can. We could go dig around it. In fact, if the community has another one that they like, I know there's a few out there that kind of are trying to solve this problem. Let us know selfhosted.show slash contact. Now, just looking through the source code, I'm in there. There's a file in the source called windows.cc and it mentions ultra VNC has RDP support. Do you need to use a, a normal VNC client for this or do they provide everything that you need? Yep. They bring you install the client on your OS and you can set up a session ID. You plug it in there and it connects. Once you connect once, it saves it in a recent sessions area. So you can just double click to reconnect to the machine again. Then once you're in there, you get a viewer that lets you scale the screen image or set it to the actual resolution. And it has a little bar along the top that lets you switch between multiple monitors if you're remoting into a system that has multiple screens. And it also gives you a few other quick options that you might want, like send a few keystrokes and, and stuff like that. And the UI, when you launch it, the remote, either to connect to someone or if you want to allow an inbound connection, it's just that one UI. And it gives you your ID and you set a password right there. Very cool. Yeah, that looks like a great project. One caveat, though, unfortunately, at this time, does not support Wayland on oh, Linux. Oh, God. So, Why is there always a gotcha like this? Well, it's the nature of the Linux desktop right now. Uh, but thankfully, all of our studio systems... TeamViewer works on Wayland. Yes, it does. It does. And I'm actually... That is one thing I have to give TeamViewer credit for. And why I went with it is, even though it gets a lot of hate uh, in the technical community legitimately they have been supporting a Linux release now for a very long time. And they are, they support Wayland, they support Gnome shell plasma. Their integration is top notch. And I got to give them credit for it. Like they've built a good product. That's why I was willing to pay for it. It's just the way that went about the, the delay in it. And then the fact that I have to pay that every single year, it's just not my bag. And I always prefer to self host if I can. And now I just have to decide, do I want the spec server or do I want to pay for the rust desk server? I got to make that decision, but I'll play with it some more and decide in the future. All right. Very good. Now, moving on. Have you seen this website, shucks.top? No, I've never heard of this. Uh, what is this? Somebody put it in the uh, Discord, of course. And this website lists you all the different drives that are suitable to be shucked. You know how I like shucking drives. I do. 
And uh, normally it's a dashboard of which retailer has which shuckable drive on sale. But right now, thanks to crypto and this annoying new Chia coin thing that uh, you can mine coins on hard drives, apparently, uh, hard drives, just like everything else now, are in short supply. You got to be kidding me, really? Yeah. No, I want storage prices to be going down right now because I have a I have a big plan to buy a lot of disk around November. Dang it. So uh you know, yeah, you're a big shucker for those of you who don't know the term. <laughs> you get a USB enclosure hard drive and you shuck that enclosure and you get the disk out of it. You know, it's like a coconut. You get you get the husk off and you pull out the coconut. And um sometimes it's delicious and sometimes it's uh not so good. Well, sometimes it isn't so good. Actually, this week, I, uh, I've i had two hard drives sale on me this week, both shucked Seagates. Oh, no, man. I've got a bunch of uh, older Western digital drives that are approaching three years old. And so what I wanted to start doing was buying a disc every quarter, give or take, to start kind of staggering their dates so that the bathtub curve, um, I don't fall victim to that, which is, you know, if every if if everything's the same age with the same environmental life conditions, the chances that they're going to fail all at the same time is reasonably high. So I wanted to try and protect myself from that a little bit. Um, and so I bought a couple of these Seagate drives earlier in the year. I think I talked about it on the show. And both of these Seagate 10 terabyte, uh, what are they, Barracuda Pros, have both just decided this week at exactly the same time despite my burn-in tests and everything else, that uh, this week was the week they were going to give up the ghost. Oh, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, nobody ever wants to deal with that. Any data loss happen? No, no data loss. One of the drives was being used in ZFS, and the other one was on MergerFS. So Snapraid did its thing perfectly, and so did ZFS. So we're all good, baby. Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in credit and support the show. No matter what skill level you're at or what technology stack you use, Linode can help your ideas come to life on the web. You're going to be impressed. And when you get that $100, you can really try it out. Alex, I don't think I told you yet, but I set up File Run. You know, you recommended it to us on Linux Unplugged. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, I set up a uh, Linode a couple of, well, it's been about a week now, for the Elementary Development Summit. And they're using File Run to upload all of their videos and stuff for the summit. We were going to do a NextCloud instance, but just File Run seemed to make so much more sense, a lot more straightforward for the for the presenters, too way simpler and it was really easy I, i've told the story before but it actually got i got it all set up using linode's one click docker deployment which is in my case i chose debian but you got a couple options there debian docker basic setup with docker compose pre-installed and all of the right repos set up and so i deploy that and then i just grabbed the docker compose from the project for file run and had it up and running before the dns had switched over <laughs> for the website and uh, it was just like a no-brainer. And then later on, you know, of course, Wes. Wes is always like, you know what we could do? We could mount the S3 object storage and then use that for the storage for file run so we don't have to worry about them filling up the disk. And I'm like, of course, I'm on board with that. I love stacking those Linode services together. Their dashboard makes us really simple and straightforward. You can use their cloud firewall to protect your system. Then you can deploy a Linode to run your application. And then you can use object storage on the back end 
to essentially have addressable storage that expands as you need it. Now, there's a lot of ways to crack that. And if any of that sounds complicated, don't worry. It's also really simple to just get started with a standard box, really easy with just a couple of clicks. It's a great opportunity to learn with that $100 credit as well. They have this powerful system with this simple interface. So many people make that claim but it's actually extremely hard to get that balance right. And the reason why Linode gets it right is because they've been attempting this since 2003. And through just working at this and listening to their customers and building it, just focused on delivering the best virtualized cloud computing and having that focus since 2003, they've gotten to this point where they have this marvelous system now. So go use our $100 credit at linode.com slash SSH to try it out. And yeah, the performance is fantastic too. We love getting your stories. So let us know how your switch to Linode has gone. Linode.com slash SSH. Now, I'm reluctant to even bring this up, to be honest with you, because the open source community is well known for over-egging the pudding when it comes to drama. But the more I dug into this story, the more I felt like it was worth a discussion on the show. So this week, Home Assistant developer Frank, uh, you've probably seen his name everywhere over Home Assistant. He is a prolific contributor to the project, uh, spelled F-R-E-N-C-K. He jumped into a NixOS GitHub pull request and made what seems on the face of it like a really simple request. He says, as the author of the package, I'm asking it to not be repackaged here. Sounds straightforward enough, right? I suppose. I mean, it's it's MIT licensed, so he doesn't really have the authority to make that request. Well, that's just it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you, there's the spirit of the developer's intention, um, and then there's the letter of the law, which says that NixOS, which is a Linux distribution that's very technical, very niche, and very awesome if you're into declared systems that are kind of just super, super niche. NixOS is great, but... Um, it is a Linux distribution just like Ubuntu or Debian. They package these things up into their own repos. Well, here's the thing as well, right, is is that NixOS is all about reproducible builds. But for some reason, Fedora felt the need to package this Ambi Python library as well. And as, as the thread transpired on GitHub, uh, Frank started to get a little more petulant, dare I say, as time went by. You know, he started off by saying, I have no emotional investment, no no emotional attachment to this issue. And then a few posts later, this is, uh, this, by the way, has moved out of GitHub onto the Home Assistant forum by this point. He goes from saying, I've got no emotional attachment to saying, sorry to hear you don't respect requests from authors who wrote the source you rely on, the author that has put in the effort to create it in the first place. Always good to know a project doesn't care. I mean, come on. In my opinion, I would characterize a lot of his responses as short and somewhat hostile and snippy. Uh, people ask him like very they 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 come back with very reasonable counter suggestions and proposals that have been that are well thought out, and he responds with trite one sentence responses that are sort of demeaning. Yeah, one example of that is that said NixOS offered uh, we will set a config flag in the OS that reads except that this package is not supported by upstream developers and I will go to Nix packages to report any issues equals true. (laughs) And Frank was still unhappy with that. So here's what I think here, Alex, because the core argument that Frank had was he was concerned this would lead to user support requests on, 
on to him. Mm-hmm. He was concerned that people would install Home Assistant and all of these packages and dependencies on NixOS, run into some problem with 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 their setup at some point that led them to the Ambi library, and then from there they would dissect the source code and the original author, suss out his contact information or his GitHub, and then file a issue support request or email with Frank after that process. Now, um, I've been in this for quite a while, and I could tell you, I'd bet you a good steak dinner that the totality of people that would do that over, say, like a five to 10 year period would probably be a handful, you know, under a dozen. Because let's be honest, Nix OS is an extremely niche Linux distribution. Then the ability to ascertain who the developer is, well, look, actually, the ability to ascertain what particular library is even causing you a problem is a niche skill set. The ability to ascertain which developer created that one library that's creating you a problem is also a niche skill set. So you get my point? Like it's his main concern was that he'd be getting support requests. When in reality, that just doesn't seem likely. That's not going to that's not going to result from this inclusion in NixOS. Which raises the question, you know, if you don't want your stuff to be used and packaged by other people like this. I mean, the whole point of open source licensing is that you're giving your code away. You still retain intellectual property over it. You still, air quotes, own it, but you don't own what people can do with it. And for me, that raises the question, why is he even publishing it as open source code in the first place if he doesn't want people to do this? Yeah, that's that's a good question. It's a tricky one, because if you think about the way in which Home Assistant itself is licensed, that uses the permissive Apache 2 license. Uh, and that doesn't really impose very many instri- restrictions at all on derivative works. If Home Assistant then includes any GPL licensed stuff, at that point, you then have a whole other can of worms about... Uh, what would what would happen next and i think for me i get a little concerned when i see how paulus uh who was on the show a couple of episodes ago jumped into that home assistant thread all of these links will be in the show notes by the way uh and basically just locked the thread closed it and then delisted it like sweeping the whole thing under the rug I think all of this is that behavior of shutting down the forms and not really wanting to engage in a conversation about it, um, trying to reduce the amount of heat that Frank is taking and Frank's response and being so concerned about additional support requests that he would go to those, you know, he would essentially get in that argument in that thread. I think all of these are symptomatic of what you and I have worried about the project for a long time. And that is that the core developers who are some of, as you mentioned, the most important developers to the project are beyond what we would consider burned out and that they are on their very last nerve. And every time we see a public interaction, we witness what appears to be an individual who is so far at his end of his rope, he has no time to deal with people talking back to him. He has no time for the possibility that he might get additional emails. The idea that he might get more emails is is upsetting to him. And then you see Paulus going around and cleaning up the conversation in the forum. So that way it doesn't inundate Frank with all of this, you know, peanut gallery chatter about it. And just to try to get away from the issue as quickly as possible because he doesn't have time to deal with it and he wants to stay focused. And I don't really know what the solution here is because that just seems to be, even if it's not the case, even if this is just Chris's wild opinion, it's what the public sees every time. And the issue here is this made it out beyond just the home assistant community this time. It made it onto Hacker News and it had a very robust conversation over there. It was fired up on the forums like Alex said. It made it to Reddit. 
it was in our team Slack where we were discussing this back and forth. Like it made its rounds around the internet and it's not a good look. It looks like everybody's hot take is, well, they don't know what open source is. They don't understand how Linux distributions work. Don't they know it's MIT licensed? And it's clear they're smart guys. They know all of those things. There's something else going on here. And we're just getting little glimpses of it. See, I think you have a different take. You worry that maybe one day these guys, because they don't appreciate and understand open source, are going to take their cake and their ball and they're going to go home and eat it. Does that make sense? And they're going to convert it to a commercial product and we're going to be sitting here going, well, wait, now what do we do? My concern is more the development team just totally burns out and leaves the project and abandons it and says, well, it's open source. You take care of it. I think both scenarios are probably equally likely at this point, although perhaps going closed source I mean, we, we've got precedent for that with MB. We've we've seen other projects do that before. I do think Home Assistant is slightly uh, less likely to do that because just because of the sheer volume of open source contributions over the years. I think if there was any talk of Home Assistant itself going closed source, that would get forked in a heartbeat and, you know, Home Lover would come out of it instead or whatever you want to call it. Um and then Home Assistant just wouldn't be able to keep up with changes without that uh, open source support. So I, I don't think it's hugely likely, but I feel like, you know, all, all the moves and it's it's a difficult one because we talked to Paulus recently and he paints a very rosy picture about the future of the product. And it's a sustainable one as well. You know, Frank and Paulus and these guys are getting paid through Nebucasa, which oftentimes is a uh, a reason that these developers burn out is because it's a side hustle or a side project for these guys. It, it is their job, you know? So I do think we've come to expect a certain level of access to open source developers like this, because of the way we conduct all of our business in public. I'm sure if we went and looked in some internal, you know, company email thread at name big corp here, we'd see similar levels of emotional attachment and, petulance at times but the difference here is that it's it's out for the world to see and there is a bit of a, a spirit of cooperation in the open source community a lot of home assistant is built on top of a lot of other great code and so when somebody comes along and says yeah but don't use our open source code in your project it doesn't really sit well and it, it gets noticed mm-hmm. and i think to your point that you know they are they are full-time employees of nebucasa Money is only part of the solution. It, it is likely that Frank is, is such a talented developer and what he works on is so crucial to Home Assistant. I bet you there is just an unrelenting, never ending amount of work for him to take on. And, you know, he did some work with the new ESP Home release that we'll talk about. And he did. Yeah. Yeah. He's done. He's, he's involved in, in more things than ever now. And I think there is only so much that maybe one developer can take on. And when you're talented like he is, you're going to get you're going to get worked. And I don't know if you've ever read The Phoenix Project, which is a book about DevOps. um, It talks about this concept of a halo engineer who people are afraid of uh, upsetting uh, or touching systems because this this one guy knows all of the different uh, incantations you have to say to make something work. I kind of feel like Frank's maneuvering into that position and the home assistant project's very dependent on him because of his skills it's a difficult problem to solve and it is not unique to home assistant that uh, you end up with this reliance on on one talented guy but uh, i don't know what the solution is either do we all stop collectively emailing frank all at once (laughs) maybe (laughs) yeah that that might help (laughs) 
<laughs> well, uh, why don't we just really quickly talk about ESP Home? It's, it's, it's now part of Home Assistant, so they're kind of related. Uh, and the, for those of you who don't recall, those those little ESP, uh, what is it, 8266 and the ESP32? Yeah, there's a couple of them. They're made out of China. There's a company there called Espressif, and they make ESP8266 and ESP32 devices. Little Arduino-compatible single-board uh, systems that have a Wi-Fi chip in them. You can use them for for all kinds of things like sensors or controllers, um, little MQTT devices. And uh, now it's sort of a perfect fit, as you can imagine, with Home Assistant because that's a lot of – that's a lot of things you'd want to do with a Home Assistant installation. And so they've rolled out version 1.19.0. And I think the biggest thing in here is they've added a feature that's very similar to commercial smart plugs where you you can give it your Wi-Fi information over Bluetooth LE and give it the Wi-Fi credentials. That's a huge feature. That's slick. Yeah, I remember Paul us telling us about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's nice to see it actually land in a release. Now, another improvement they've made is that they've been uh, working hard on some new tooling to make it easier for everyone to install ESP Home and other firmwares on their devices. And to do that, they've created something called ESP Web Tools, linked in the show notes. Yeah, that's um, nice to see and going to make it even simpler for people to approach. But don't worry, they're also improving the command line experience. So both got some love, which is great to see. Uh, And then the other thing that I think puts this into now I'm very much going to consider devices based on this is, and this is something I've been waiting for desperately, they're going to add attributes from Home Assistant now that you're going to be able to save them into the local sensor on ESP Home. So, for example, uh, the brightness of a light. So when the light turns on, it resumes the original brightness or uh, the the current temperature for a climate device. So that way it doesn't have to keep checking in with Home Assistant all the time. To be able to read attributes from Home Assistant entities right into the local sensor, I feel like, is a game-changing feature. For them, it's just a bullet point in the new release. And I'm like, yes, I'm so happy. I've got this like Jonah Hill kind of I'm so happy GIF playing right now. Yes. <laughs> All right. Exactly. I think that's pretty great. So a new ESP home makes me happy. Now, in the spirit of embedded devices, Tasmota has a new release this week. They've just released 9.5.0. Now, there is a breaking change in this release and lights using the MQTT discovery protocol will not work correctly in recent versions of Home Assistant. Uh, so upgrade to 9.5 and use the Tasmota integration to, to work around that problem. We want to thank our friends over at A Cloud Guru for sponsoring this year's program and let you know about their hands-on with Podman containers on Linux course, which is free for the month of June. And of course, it'll still be available for members when you go over there. This course, you're going to learn what containers are, so you're going to get some basics there, but also then how to manage them and specifically how to manage them using Podman, how Podman interoperates with Kubernetes and SystemD, and of course, because it's the new way now, how to manage Podman using cockpit which is the web graphical interface that i actually think is pretty great but uh, don't mention it to alex it it upsets him but you can go over there we'll have a link in the show notes (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you can uh, check out hands-on with podman containers on linux for a cloud guru which is free in june but then of course will be available on the platform link in the show notes probably time we did some feedback eh yeah i think so i feel like it Corey wrote in he wants to get social, but he wants to do it without social media. He says, hey, long-time listener and even long-timer self-hoster. I love the show. And he says, with uh, more and more things going online only, in-person interactions are getting to be more sparse. 
I found lately I need to put conscious effort into keeping up with friends and family, checking in from time to time and or even taking notes about something they've mentioned to follow up on. Wow. You know what, Corey? I'm just realizing I should be doing that. (laughs) He says, Corey goes on to say, I was curious if anyone had a tech solution for this, some sort of like contact management thing where you could make notes about a project or vacation they mentioned. So you could ask them about it later on or or even set reminders like, hey, self, you haven't talked to X in four weeks. Maybe check in on them or maybe some sort of reminder about their vacation and asking them how it went. Perhaps it sounds a bit dumb, but I think I could put it to use, especially after college or school when friends kind of go their own way. So is there something out there? What would you guys do? Thanks. Well, at first I thought the question was about social media and I kind of had a sinking feeling that uh, self-hosting your own social media kind of defeats the point of social media. And then as the question carried on, I sort of was listening and realized that actually what he's looking for is a basically a a customer relationship management system. And there is a really good one in this space, in the self-hosted space, called Monica, at monicahq.com. And this essentially lets you set reminders for all sorts of things, like the names of the children of all of your friends, uh, wedding anniversaries, the last time you called them and talked to, talked to them about the weather or whatever it might be. Monica lets you quickly and easily log all that information so you can be a better friend, family member, or spouse. (laughs) I kind of think this is a great idea, actually. Or I could see it, you know, for like keeping track of what you guys have going on, you know, for the JB team members. So that way I'm not like rude and just forgetting the important things that you guys have going on, (laughs) you know, like this could make me a better team member. Well, good news. They have an official Docker image over at Docker Hub. I might give it a look. If I remember after the show, I might give it a try. Yeah, essentially, it's a digital Rolodex. Yeah, I think that actually be pretty useful. Okay, so the Hom writes in, and this is about cooling Raspberry Pis in your famous RV server seat without cutting big holes in it. He's got a couple of suggestions about using water cooling, actually, to cool the air inside the box rather than the pies themselves. Hmm. Yeah, I had not even considered water cooling a Raspberry Pi before. That'd actually be a pretty cool project, wouldn't it? (laughs) So how would that work? If you think about it, you'd put a radiator inside the seat that would act as a heat sink. I suppose. Because the thing about water cooling rigs that I always, I mean, I've never done water cooling in my life. I've always wanted to, but it's always just been that notch more expensive than I'm willing to go. Yeah. Uh, Whenever I see like Linus Tech Tips or whoever mucking about with water cooling, they've got these big, shiny copper heat sinks directly attached to the motherboard or whatever to the cpu i I just how would you transfer the heat from the seat to the radiator i guess is is the question that is a good i think the way you'd have to do it is you'd have to get something that sits on the pie so i'd have to get rid of my flirt cases that i like and get something that affixes to the like to the hot components on the pie affix it to the flirt cases because they are a heat sink themselves right maybe 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 You'd want, you'd, I'd also want a, like a plate that I could attach to a router. You know, you'd want a couple of different, or maybe something for the switch. And then you'd, you'd run water cooling through those plates into a radiator that I, I guess you could maybe put it in the booth, but I think for better cooling, you'd need the radiator outside the booth. Yep. Clearly this needs better, better planning, but I like where the home's going with this. I, it's an idea I actually had not considered and anything would be better than cutting a hole in the side of my RV. However, the pies are only part of the problem. Because the other situation I have is the electrical system with the Victron equipment and the batteries. When I'm running solar, and so I'm taking in a whole bunch of solar, which generates heat, 
surprisingly, <laughs> and then also running air conditioning. So I'm inverting solar power into air conditioning when it's really hot out. So like say above 95 degrees or 90 ish, even that just generates a lot of heat in itself. Then you combine that with when I've been driving, the drivetrain is very hot, which is behind the power bay. So it's a lot of ambient heat. And what I have to do to keep it running is I have to get airflow going through there. So I don't think I could water cool the Victron equipment. So it would only solve the Raspberry Pi problem, but definitely worth considering. I'm going to actually go do a little Googling tonight and see what I can find. Yeah, I mean, like maybe with hard drives, you, you don't need a huge amount of airflow over them. You just need some. And maybe you could make that fan pull double duty of doing the water cooling and also blowing air over the drivetrain and, and battery bay. Well, Alex, I think you better come out here and uh, set a few weeks aside so we can start getting to work on this project. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, it's episode 50 before we know it. Yeah, maybe that would be fun, wouldn't it? Hoo-wee. I don't know, though. I'm pretty nervous about it. Pretty nervous about cutting holes. I'll, I'll come to some solution. And when I do, I'll share it. But in the meantime, let's talk about something that'd be simple, something that maybe I won't have to mess too much with. Yeah, we've got an app pick for you all this week called Tiny Home. This is a simple static homepage generator. There's a link to it in the show notes. And if you head on over there, you'll see there's a link to an example demo site. And the demo site is just, it's so simple. It's just headings with a couple of buttons on it. You know, so if you want to put all of your different self-hosted web apps it's basically a collection of links you know like heimdall like homer like organizer all those kind of things except this is a statically generated super simple little website yeah and i think it just generates it from bash scripts or some kind of script so it's really easy for you to manage it and just spit out a static website that's pretty nice that's pretty nice yeah just generate a little csv file and the static generator will do the rest <laughs> Gosh, that is easy. Uh, if you're still mulling over Google Photo alternatives, check out Alex on Linux Unplugged 409. He joined us to talk about some of his favorites and some of the ones we've covered on this show before, but uh, with a few updates. That's at linuxunplugged.com slash 409. And for all the places to get in touch with us, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. You can find Alex on the Twitter. He's at Ironic Badger. I am at Chris Elias. And this here show is at Self Hosted Show. Thanks to our site reliability engineers who keep the show going at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Stick around if you're a member for your exclusive post show. And I have a bit of exciting news for those of you who are cloudfree.shop customers. There will be some new smart plugs coming in stock this week, version two with energy monitoring, as well as all the existing Tasmosa features. And uh, you can still use the coupon code selfhosted to get 10% off over there. And thanks for listening, everyone. That was selfhosted.show slash 47.